We have been going through the letter to the Galatians. And one of the things that I love about the letter to the Galatians, it's one of the earliest letters, one of the earliest parts of the New Testament. And it's also a very angry letter. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter because some people that he cared deeply about who had come to trust in Christ and had become Christians uh, after he left and went on to some other places to talk about uh, the gospel, some false teachers came in behind him and convinced the Galatians that they weren't really good enough Christians. That actually comes up a little bit in what we're going to look at tonight. And because Paul responds with this angry letter, it actually is wonderful for us. What, are we missing something? No, we're good. Uh, it, it, it's, the reason that it's a good thing that we have this angry letter is anger is always a clue. It always reveals what matters most. And so if you've ever wondered, like, all these different people say Christianity is this or it's that, and, you know, who knows what really was true or important to the early Christians, one of the ways you know what was true and important to the early Christians is this angry letter. You don't have to wonder. And the thing that he says matters the most, that you understand that faith is by grace, gra salvation, sorry, is by faith, grace alone. Not just to become a Christian, but to live as a Christian. Because what the false teachers were saying was, well, it's, it's good like for you to first come into a relationship with God. That needs to be by grace and through faith. But after that, it's up to you to kind of keep this thing going. And I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where you felt like you had to provide all of the energy to keep it going. It's not very fun, right? And for a lot of people, that's what Christianity has been like to them. Honestly, maybe some of you, almost certainly some of your friends, have grown up with a Christianity where they felt like it was incumbent upon them to keep the whole thing going. And they're kind of sick of it. And that's a lot of the people that you are friends with. I know it because I've been working at Belmont now 22 years. And it, that story gets repeated over and over again. Tonight, we're going to look at one of the most important parts of the letter to the Galatians. As a matter of fact, as we get into this um, section of Scripture, and actually, I need a Bible. Anybody got an NIV or ESC? What do we have here? I don't even know what that one is. Can I have that one? <laughs> Sorry, I, I would use my phone, but I'm using my phone to record. So um, thank you. I'm going to borrow this one. What is this one? The ESV. We like the ESV. Um, <laughs> check, check out what Paul says here. I, I, I was, I was going to start out by, by asking this question, why did Jesus come? But, you know, I know a lot of you grew up in church, and so you know the answer. Well, you know, it's not the Sunday school answer, Jesus came because of Jesus. That, that wouldn't work. That's usually the Sunday school answer, right? You know, any Christian question, the answer is Jesus. Well, the reason, that question, why did Jesus come, doesn't work. But you would say, to save us, probably, because even if you're not a Christian, you've been around Christians, you know that's the right answer. But Paul actually goes farther than that. He goes farther than that here. Listen to what he says. We're going to start at, um, actually, chapter 3, verse 25. But now... Now, again, I, I'm, the problem with doing letters bit by bit is we're in the middle of an argument. He's been talking about the difference between um, the Old Testament and the New Testament generally. Um, and in verse 25, he's continuing the argument. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew 
nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, now listen to this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. That's Jesus came so that we might be saved. But it doesn't stop there. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Can I keep your Bible? Awesome, thank you. It's very nice. Christmas present? Uh, no, no, you've had it for a while. Okay, good. <laughs> so, you know, here, here we're going to break this down. First, we're going to talk about the culmination of adoption. Because he starts out this argument talking about before it was this and now it's this. Before it was, we were slaves and heirs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we'll talk about what does that mean, okay? The culmination of adoption. And then we're going to talk about the security that adoption brings, the security of adoption. And then we're going to talk about the experience of adoption. Because what Paul says is, Jesus came at just the right time to redeem us so that we might become sons of God. And the Spirit was sent so that we might feel like it. That's the heart of what he's saying here. But let me, let me explain it. The, the most confusing part really is the beginning part. And, and the reason I talk about it as the culmination is that's the way Paul's arguing. What, what he's been saying is, you know, well, here, here's the thing. What the false teachers were telling these Galatian Christians is that there are like kind of A-level Christians and like B-level Christians. There's like some people that are more important or have greater status in the kingdom of God. And they tend to be the people that are, well, not tend to be, what these false teachers are saying is they're the people who don't just trust in Jesus, but they also keep all of the law. They keep all the laws about what you should wear and what you should eat. All of the Old Testament clean laws, all of these laws. And the problem with Paul, these false teachers are telling the Galatians, is that he told you all you really need is to trust in Christ. And that's it. And the problem with that, guys, this is what the false teachers are saying, is that, no, God said you should do all this stuff. And so if you don't do all that stuff, God's not really pleased with you. Oh, you kind of might be in his family, but you're like the ugly stepchild, right? That's kind of what they're saying. And what, how does Paul answer that? He says, look, these people don't understand that the whole Bible is actually a story that's unfolding. And God has always related to his people by grace but for a time, he couldn't give them everything. He couldn't help them understand everything. Some of it he had to unveil bit by bit. And one of the things that he's unveiling bit by bit is this, this great thing that he's going to give you, which he's going to bring you into his family. But for a while, 
you were a child. Now here's the thing. When you're a child, and he's kind of depending on some cultural practices that are a little different from ours. But what he's saying is, for a while, when you're a child, it doesn't really matter if you're the heir of the estate or you're one of the slave children, you all get raised together. And even if you're an heir, you're not really in charge yet because you, things have not come to the fullness of time. But now, Paul's saying, now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has lived and died, and now that Jesus has ascended to the Father and sent his spirit, like that, that time of being a child is over, so to speak. The time now has come where all God's children, male, female, Jew, Greek, master, slave, all of you are equal. You're all one. You're all perfectly beautiful in God's sight because of what Jesus has done. So what these Galatian false teachers are telling you, that you know it's not enough for you just to have Christ, you need to also really, 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 really mean it when you pray. And you need to make sure you do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this, and you better not slack off at all, or you're going to kind of be one of those people that God's just forever disappointed in. No. What Paul's saying is, you're a child of God. Jesus came not just to save you so that you could then work on your relationship with God and try to keep him loving you. Jesus came so that you would be made sons. And you might say, well, that's interesting. Why didn't he say sons and daughters? Why? Well, the reason is because under Roman law, sons had privileges that daughters did not. I'm not saying that's good. I think it's unjust. But it was true in Roman law, and that's what he's helping using as the illustration here. It was true that sons could not be disinherited. Well, actually, let me correct that. Natural-born sons could be disinherited. Adopted sons could not. It's actually the same in our legal system. When we adopted our little girl, we had to pledge and sign papers that we would never disinherit her. I've never had to do that for my boys. <laughs> and no, I don't remind them of that regularly. But it is a trump card I could play if I really needed to, right? No, it's true. Adopted children have more security under Roman law and under our law than natural-born children. And that's what Paul is saying here. Your adopted children and adopted children have statuses. Adopted sons have a status that can never be taken away from them. Never. And that's why he uses this imagery. And the ladies are like, well, it's a little hard to like, think of myself as a son. I know, but all the guys have to think of themselves as part of the bride of Christ. And one of the things that means is, one of the things that means is while your gender is important, it actually isn't like the most defining thing about you. As a matter of fact, that's the point he's saying here. Like all the things that we would use, all the cultural markers we would use to say, this is who I am, your race. Now in the ancient world, you were either Jewish or you are Greek. That's how the Jews referred to it. Not technically Greek, but you were non-Jewish. That was Gentiles, that was Greeks, that was everybody. But Paul says, no, in Christ, the most important thing is whether you're in Christ or not. Now, that doesn't mean that these other categories are completely done away with. As a matter of fact, later um, in this letter and in other letters, he'll give particular instructions to men and women, to children. 
right? And he does the same thing in Ephesians. So Paul's not saying that these categories have no meaning whatsoever, but he's saying they do not ultimately define you. As a matter of fact, all the things in the ancient world that would have defined you would have been ways you said, here's who I am and here's why I matter. The Bible says Christianity deconstructs every one of those. Are you a citizen? In the ancient world, that was a huge issue. If you were a Roman citizen, that was awesome. And it was rare. But Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. What family are you from? In the ancient world, that mattered in a huge way. But Paul says, and the Bible says, that you're now part of the family of God. All of these things, they matter because we don't believe in just ideas. We believe that God in the person of Jesus became an actual human being with a particular culture. Culture matters. It matters. But what is ultimate about who you are is what God says and what God has done. Unless you think that there's sort of different levels of people that please God, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, the Bible says, and Paul is emphasizing here, that you are a son of God and an heir. So adoption is actually the culmination. Look at what he says. So many people, I think, have, I think, trivialized Christianity into being just about whether or not you get into heaven when you die. And, and if they're, a, you know, a little better than that, they may think, well, it's about whether your sins are forgiven and you can live with peace because you're not guilty all the time. But Paul says, no, it's actually bigger than that. Jesus didn't come just so you could get into heaven when you die. Jesus didn't come just so that you could be forgiven. Does that sound crazy? Look at what Paul says. Jesus came at just the right time, born of a woman, born under law, so that we might be redeemed so that. There's another purpose clause there. So that we might be adopted as sons. In other words, I don't know what you think about Christianity, but real Christianity says God sent Jesus to make you part of his family. In justification, in the idea that God forgives you, which is true, you go from being God's enemy to being God's friend. That's incredible. But the gospel is actually even better than that. You don't just become God's friend. You become an adopted son you be brought into his very family. Now, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, Jaya Packer, said this one time, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. So if somebody asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What's your answer? I hope your answer is, I'm an adopted child of God. Because that is the apex that is the pinnacle. That's the ultimate purpose 
for which Jesus came into the world was that you might be an adopted child of God with all of the privileges and all of the security and all of the glory. That means there's no second-class Christians, right? So that's the culmination of adoption. What about the security of adoption? Well, what is adoption? Adoption, like justification, is a legal act. It's different. It brings a new status because of a legal action. It's courtroom language. Now, the, the Bible talks about other things that come to people through the work of Christ. For instance, sanctification is another big word. And that's about healing. That's hospital language. That's about how you're kind of messed up inside and it begins to change when the love of Christ begins to transform you. But adoption, like justification, refers to God treating you differently. Not because of a whim, but because of something he's done. Adopted you into his family. You see, I think a lot of times when we think about what it means to be a Christian, we tend to think in terms of negative things. In other words, my debt has been removed. My guilt has been removed. My burden has been lifted. All of those are, are great. But salvation in Christ doesn't just bring you back to zero. It doesn't just take away all the negatives. It actually gives you something that you never had. This is why Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, talked about how in Christ all the tribes of Adam have more than, or all the, all the sons of God have more than Adam lost. There's even an interesting phrase that theologians use sometimes. They talk about the fortunate fall. Isn't that a strange idea? But it's the idea that if Adam had never sinned, you would only have the righteousness of a man. But you actually have the righteousness of Christ, of God himself in the gospel. You have the righteousness, the beauty. Righteousness means God looking at you and being thrilled because he sees you as one who's done everything he requires from the heart. It doesn't mean he just looks at people who are in Christ as people who are no longer guilty. He looks at people who are be as beautiful in his sight. And everyone who trusts in Christ, no matter how weak your faith, is looked at the same because you're all adopted, right? That's the point he's making here. And pastorally, do you understand why that matters? Because there's a lot of ways that, especially um, established Christians, leaders, can make some people feel like spiritual pygmies. And Paul says, no, that's an undermining of the very purpose for which Christ came. Christ came to make you all sons of God, whether you're male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, or free. If you think that those categories more, matter more than being in Christ, you've undermined the purpose for which Christ came. Jesus did not just come to redeem us. In other words, the gospel's bigger and more beautiful than we think. And it changes everything about us. And it's a really big deal. And it's actually unique to Christianity. Now, there are hints of it in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Israel as a nation is called the Son of God. 
right? There are hints. Adoption isn't like a brand new thing, but it's not really unveiled the way it is in the New Testament. But for instance, this is a doctrine that's completely not just foreign, but blasphemous to Islam. I actually gave a, a combo one time on the doctrine of adoption. And somebody asked the question at the end, um, what about other religions? What about Islam, for instance? And there was a, a Muslim student who said, well, I can answer that. Islam thinks that this would be blasphemous idea. Why? Because God is so holy, Allah is so holy and transcendent, he could never have this kind of intimate, personal relationship with people. This is an offensive idea to Islam. It's a nonsensical idea in Buddhism. Why? Because God is not personal. But what I, what I believe with all my heart is that you resonate with the idea of being God's adopted child in the deepest parts of your being because that's what he made you for. And I think all the other religions that try to say you were made for something else or for something less than an intimate, personal, family relationship with the one who made you have sold you a bill of goods. You were made for this. And because Adam and Eve fell Jesus came to make this your reality. And because this is so important, Paul says in the last point here, that the Spirit was sent so that you could cry, Abba, Father. Do you see that? Jesus came so that you could be sons of God, and the Spirit was sent so you could feel like it. Now, this is actually really helpful to see, because there are a lot of people that will tell you the Spirit was sent to do all these kind of things. And unfortunately, here's the great irony. A lot of people will make you feel like a spiritual pygmy because you don't have all the spiritual things that other people do. Isn't that interesting? Like, I was like, whoa, what about Galatians? If you think the main purpose of the Spirit coming was so you can be all crazy and hoopla and all this kind of stuff, Galatians says the main point of the Spirit coming was so you would know that you're a child of God. And that you would cry, Abba, Father. That's talking about an experience. And he says it's the purpose for which the Spirit came. And yet we live in a world where so many people feel like second-class Christians because they don't seem to feel the Spirit like other people. I think that's tragic. Tragic. What does he mean here by the experience of adoption? Well, notice, look at here. Paul says, because you are sons, that's because of the work of Jesus, the Spirit is sent into our hearts. In other words, the Spirit is sent to people that already have the status. So it's an extra thing. The Spirit is sent to people who already have the status. And what is the experience? Well, you know, I think one of the best places to see it is the prodigal son parable. Do you know this story? Right, where there are two sons and the younger son says to the father, basically, I, I think you're, I wish you were dead. I'm going to treat you like dead, so give me the inheritance, which I should only get when you're dead. I basically consider you dead. Give me my inheritance. And he runs off, right? Spends it, wastes it, becomes, you know, hungry, starving. And then he makes a plan. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this in the prodigal son story, but the, the, the son comes back, but he's got a certain plan. He's going to say, and he even, the Bible even tells us what his speech that he's planning is, he's going to come back and he's going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. 
make me like one of your hired men. What he wants is an opportunity to work off his debt. He wants a chance to work off his debt, to pay his bill, and in a sense, control what the father thinks of him by what he does. But what actually happens? When the father sees him, the father hikes up his skirts, which no respectable man in the ancient um, Middle East would do. Expose your legs, scandalous. Run, Aristotle said, great men do not run. You don't do this. But he does, he hikes up his skirts, he runs, and, and when the son sees him, the son's speech changes. Do you notice this? The speech changes. He no longer says, make me like one of your hired men. The father can't stop kissing him. The father says, let's have a party. There's a lot more I could say about this parable. But here's, here's the point. What does it feel like to be a son? It feels like the one whom the father can't stop kissing. There's another son in the parable, right? The older son who refuses to enter in to the father's joy. Even though the father pleads with him, son, everything I have is yours. But even though he's still physically in the house, his heart is far from his father. A lot of people that have grown up in the church are like that older brother. They're like that older brother. They're, they're, they're thinking of God more as an employer than a father who loves them, than a father who would hike up his skirts and embarrass himself because he loves them so much, right? What the father does is, is incredible. And that's, that's the problem is so many of us feel like that older brother, especially if we've been around for a long time. But here's the best way I know to explain the experience. It's an old, old Puritan. I know the Puritans get a bad rap. They had a lot of good things to say too. Not perfect. But, but there's a guy named Thomas Goodwin and, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who's an old pastor who's passed away now. You should hear some tapes of his sometimes. He's got the most incredible Welsh accent. And um, anyway, he would tell this story about Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan, who said this, imagine if you've got a dad and a little boy and they're walking down the street and the dad has the little boy's hand and they're, they're walking down the street and all of a sudden the dad like jerks him up and gives him a bear hug. He says he's no more a son in his father's arms as he is when he's walking next to him. But oh, for the difference in the experience. That's what the Spirit sent. Because you are sons, the Spirit sent to give you that bear hug. Now, the Puritans used to call these God's kisses. And, and they would say, we don't trust in these. We trust in the status, not the experience. The interesting thing is so many of us want the experience without really thinking much about the status. But actually what Paul says here is you need to understand the status. You need to dwell on the status because the status is really the key to actually having the experience because the Spirit comes to convince you that the status is real. Not to give you something extra, but to take you deeper into what you already have. 
The Puritans called these God's kisses. They said, we don't trust in them, but we surely don't despise them. And sometimes God just gives you that kind of sense of overwhelming love by which you cry, Abba, Father, and you know it's real and you know it's true. Tim Keller had a great way of saying this. He goes, you know, for the most part, we're living the Christian life telling ourselves that we're sons of God and that we're fully accepted. Do you tell yourself that sometimes? If you're a Christian, you should. You should tell yourself that a lot. But when the Spirit is doing this work that's being talked about here, this is what Tim Keller says, you don't have to tell yourself this. You know it. It's intuitive. Abba, Father, it's Aramaic, it's baby talk. It's a word that expresses confidence. It's like the child that just lifts up its hands and knows that the Father's going to pick it up. Child doesn't doubt unless you teach it to doubt. It just raises its hands, expects to be taken care of. The child just assumes that he or she is so important that you're going to drop everything to come and take care of them. And that's what the Spirit wants to come and show you about God. One last thing I'll say about this. Charles Spurgeon, and then I'm going to tell you the story about Henry Light and the song we sang. Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher, talks about this from the parable of the prodigal son. He says, you know, the father gives the prodigal son the ring, which means I trust you again. You can now sign legal documents, even though you've betrayed the family. I trust you. Here's the signet ring. You can stamp it in the wax in my name. He gives him the robe, restored your status as a prince in the family. He gives him the fatted calf. But what the Bible says that we kind of gloss over sometimes is it says, and he kissed him. It's actually a form in the Greek where he doesn't stop kissing him. He's kissing, kissing, kissing. And Charles Spurgeon says this. He goes, some of us have known what it is to be too happy to live. The love of God has been so overwhelmingly experienced by us on a few occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight, for we could not endure anymore. If God had not shielded his love and glory a bit, I think we would have died for joy. You know when most people I know have felt that? In the midst of the most difficult things that they can imagine. When God gives kisses that sustain and enable us. And that's, you know, what I love about that hymn that we sang, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, and Jesus, I'm a Cross. Those were both written by the same man, a guy named Henry Light. And Henry Light was a guy whose mom and dad split up when he was in middle school. I suspect there's other people here that can relate to that story. And in Henry's case, his dad remarried and then sent Henry and his brother off to boarding school. And from then on, when his dad would write to his own son, teenage boy, he would sign the letters, not your father, but your uncle. He no longer let his own father, he no longer let his own son call him father. From now on, you're my nephew. It's extraordinary. But you know what's even more extraordinary is that virtually every one of his hymns, the father image is a warm and comforting one. So if you're like, man, I don't know if I can understand this adoption stuff. 
you know, my dad, my, you know, I don't even have a dad. I don't even know who my dad is. You have a heavenly father who loves you. And the, the, the power of the spirit to deconstruct and reconstruct what it means to have a father. He didn't have to write these words. He didn't, like, when, how many of you are songwriters? A lot of you. Like, you don't have, you can leave this verse out. If you're like, yeah, I love, I love Jesus, but this whole thing about God being my father, I can't relate. You don't have to write a verse about that then, right? But he can't leave it out. Because he can't think about God without thinking lines like, father-like he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. When he's trying to argue with himself in Jesus on my cross, how can I sustain faith in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the betrayal? Man may trouble and distress me. And what does he say? Think what father smiles or yine. Think what father smiles. See, we learn in these hymns even how to argue against your unbelief. What are the things that you really need to argue against your heart? That's one of them. Think what father smiles are thine. Does that sound like somebody who had a wretched earthly father? It is. Maybe that's the longing of your heart. Maybe that's something you need to ask some friends to pray for you. That that would be the kind of heart cry that would resonate with you. Maybe you need to say, Jesus, I, I guess I've taken status for granted. Help me to understand the glory of this. And would you send your spirit to seal this on my heart? that I could never again think that I'm a second-class citizen in your sight, that I could live with freedom, that I could go out into the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore, that I don't matter unless I do this, this, or this, or look like this, or sound like this. I'm an adopted child of God, a son with all the security and privileges and honors, a co-heir with Christ. That's what Paul says. Let's pray together.